All right, let's get started. Um, a little advertisement for your well-being. Um, you know, we have a library, and there, there's really some amazing resources up there for you. As, as much as you might be surprised, it's not a huge library, but there are some really good theological resources. And when we did this class for years, and now we have it, we call it Theology too. It used to be a readings course where uh, uh, where we would assign various historical readings, and I would my goal was to get you through church history as you would read about these various theological topics. Those readings, and I took the time to you know parse them down to relatively small, biteable chunks. Uh, so you'll read Augustine, you'll read Wesley, you'll read all these different people, but they're all in here. So there's two huge notebooks up there in the library that look like this that has theology on them. And they're all divided up into sections like each of these courses are, today being sanctification, for instance. And anytime you're just wanting to kind of explore one of these doctrines a little bit more, go on up there, flip through this, see what the readings are that are here. You might be reading from who knows who. And, um, and it really is a, a fairly wide swath of readings in within the gen broad general Reformed tradition. So um, anyway, I was looking for some and I couldn't find it, unfortunately. There's a diagram that I that I had that uh, evidently didn't make it in here, so I was hoping it did. I was going to show it to you. But anyway, let's look at the questions. Um, Jonathan Edwards points out that true virtue is only possible with those who have experienced the grace of the gospel. Why do you think this is? What did you guys come up with? That's a really important question, actually. It kind of presupposes that um, virtue, if, uh, you know, we're using that term to relate to. Let, let's just go ahead and say, what is sanctification? I know, you know, if you've read, if you came here and having already read, hopefully, the Westminster, I, I really encourage you to do that. Um, does anybody want to tell me what sanctification is? Transformation into holiness. That's a good definition. Yeah. Transformation into holiness. That's simple, concrete, to the point. I think that works. Pretty rare I can't improve upon something, isn't it? <laughs> so that works. Um, so in that context, tell me why this is true. It happens through the gospel. So how would, yes, it does. What is a good work? Or what is holiness? What, what would be the, you know, how does God define holiness? Anybody want to take a shot at that? Purity. Purity. Is a part of it. Okay. Think about the law. The greatest. What are the commandments? Commandments. How do we know what holiness is? Well, we're taught those by the commandments, by the law of God. What is the sum total of the law of God? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and your neighbors, yourself. But that's really important. Because it's interesting that sometimes we think of holiness as somehow a different category than love. But, but that is what holiness is, love. Even as love then acts out in all sorts of various ways. Love for God, love for humanity, even love for ourselves in the, in the proper sense of that, uh, where we respect ourselves the Imago Dei. So most, you know, all of the laws somehow break down, according to Jesus, those two, even the two tablets of the law, many have noticed, or one really focuses much on our relationship to God and our love of God, and the other focuses on our relationship to one another. And um, and so, and then if you think about the Ten Commandments, those are just titles. They're just literally words. They really should be called ten words in the Hebrew. And you have these these titles, if you will, 
And that's all the corpus that follows that in Leviticus or in Deuteronomy or whatever, uh, Exodus. Th those are all explicating what love or what the Ten Commandments are translated into in terms of our behavior. And so you can put it all in that. Now, if that's true, what is a good work? What is sanctification? If it's not all things done unto God and to humanity in love. Now, why is the gospel a prerequisite to holiness, therefore? True holiness. What would be the motivation of holiness if we weren't? Remember what the gospel is. The gospel is that we've been justified by grace through faith alone. Good news. You're saved by grace. So, work it out. Do you guys talk about this in the group? It's getting really hot, man. Y'all getting hot? <laughs> man, that's over here. I'm just sitting up. Yeah, well, what are you? Doing? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, up here, it must be 80 degrees. Here we go. Um, come on. Try it. Come on. Get bold. It's all right. What do you think? What, what then would holiness, if holiness is love and love... You know, would it be loving to be, um, I don't know, to to do anything, a good work? What would make a good work loving? Glorifies God. It would, it, its, its purpose would be to glorify God. Good. You don't do it to be saved. Yes, good for everybody. Thinking you don't do it to be <laughs> saved because what would be doing it to getting to be getting saved be? What what would that be? It'd be selfish. <laughs> In other words, I'm not, I'm not loving anybody. <laughs> I'm just doing it out of fear. Fear is not love. Fear is self-preservation, if you will. So the gospel, and only the gospel that sets us free from the fear of condemnation can enable us to actually love. And love from the heart. Love fully and wholly. And so without the gospel... And the other thing about the gospel is we're going to talk a lot about idolatry and how the gospel sets us free. There's this, we're getting to that in a minute. Well, let's go to it now. Galatians uh, 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, not to submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now, the gospel is, is informing us in a new way of thinking about sin. How is sin characterized there? Slavery. It's slavery. Yeah. It's bondage. So, holiness is not only being more and more transformed into loving the Lord and loving our neighbor, but it's also transforming, the gospel transforms our, our understanding of anything that is not love, that is not according to God's command, as that which is according to an, another God, another moral virtuous system that is anti-God, that oppresses us. And so there's another aspect of sanctification that, that changes. And so the, the thing that I'm pointing out, we're going to get to it in the study tonight, is I'm afraid that a lot of people think of holiness as, the, as sort of the fine print of the contract. Isn't that true? You know, what's Christianity? And I, I think we can get this error in our own tradition here about all this gospel-centered stuff. And all of a sudden, the gospel is all about just saving me from, from the curse of hell or saving me from the wrath of God. 
But it's more than that. It's actually enabling us to flourish, to be set free. In fact, you, the Bible describes us as being, you know, the irony is that the world will see uh, Christianity and religion as what? It's sort of morally binding, mm-hmm. is oppressive. And yet the Bible says, no, we turn that upside down. You are under bondage. You are a slave to a moral system that destroys you. You know, Jeremiah describes idols as, as, as what destroys us. Idols of your destruction, he calls it. And so the Bible puts it upside down, and we were never free until we were born again. Before, all we could do was sin. Now we actually have been returned to, to, to freedom. And yes, it's true, we're still in the, in the wrestling or the tension of the two natures, but we are free to say no to what before enslaved us, which is at a very deep level the impossibility of pure love because we always had fear. We always had to justify ourselves. We always had to prove ourselves. Now, setting, setting us free from having to prove ourselves, we can love because he first loved us. So that's a really huge thing. So that's the second one. And the third one, up a little bit. What do y'all think of that? Have y'all come across this idea of the carnal Christian, anybody? Yep. Yes. What, what is it? Tell me, tell me about it. How have you heard this? What does it sound like to you? A backslider, uh, one foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world, uh, not really a, uh, you know, kind of a... Might go to church on Sunday. Okay. So, is this person a Christian? That's a good question. Well, the 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 phrase is not used in the Scripture in the New Testament, other than in the King James version. And because Sally and I had a little discussion. You did that, huh? Yeah, I like that. Romans 8:6, and the description is not of a Christian; it's a unbeliever. All right. But and it doesn't say Christian, right. it just says carnal. Yeah. And there's yeah, that's right. So anybody else? Carnal Christian, what is that where have you heard that or what does that make you think about? Carnal Christian. It's almost somebody that can't get out of their own way. Okay. Thing, Gary. Let's hear from that table back there. What'd y'all talk about? Carnal Christian. Did y'all get to it? Back there? What'd y'all say, what were y'all talking about? Our discussion, it seemed, was more about um, so the, the people who think they're earning their way to, to heaven rather than hmm. uh, just... Trying you know, to earn their way to heaven. Yeah. Okay. That would certainly be an unjustified <laughs> or an un- unassured Christian, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let me, let me tell you a little bit more about the carnal Christian theology because maybe you've heard it before. And you didn't hear that term. This idea of the carnal Christian comes also in, in, in the form of, of the idea that you can be saved without him being your Lord. So can a person know Christ as his or her Savior, but not know him as his or her Lord? You might have heard it in that kind of language. That's, a, that's, a, that's getting into this realm of theology. Um, you might have heard it, there have been movements like the Victorious Life Movement. Anybody hear of the Victorious Life Movement? Um, and if you've heard of Wesleyanism, um, then you know this view. 
In each of these views, there is a idea, a theological idea, that someone can in some way be born again or can be regenerate or can be uh, brought to saving faith somehow, but they await another event in order for them to submit and to uh, have the full lordship of God in their life. So if you were a Wesleyan, um, there was this sort of second baptism. And you hear that idea of a second baptism today in many charismatic and Pentecostal contexts. You know, had, do you have, are you, uh, uh, are you of, of the full gospel? Anybody hear the full gospel? Okay. Baptized in the Holy Spirit. Baptized in the Holy Spirit. You might have received Christ, but have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Now, so far, if you've been following orthodoxy, basically, um, you would automatically say, boy, this, this, this is just, from your vantage point, if the only theology you've learned is what you've been learning here, you, you're already seeing all kinds of discrepancies. Whoa, 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 what do you mean? Well, you, you can't receive Jesus except that you'd be born again. Remember that? You had to be baptized, if you will, in the Spirit. You, it was by the Holy Spirit that we were, remember, effectually called. And only those who are effectually called are enabled then to believe on Christ. So how can you believe on Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit? You can't, according to 1 Corinthians 2. These things have to be spiritually appraised. Having ears they don't hear, having eyes they don't see, until the Holy Spirit gives them new life. And so we already have seen that there is no salvation holistically and totally apart from the work of the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. But this view, now why do you think this view would, would come into a, a popularity? Why, why do you think that would be? Where and what context do you think that would particularly be a tempting sort of view? Whether it's Wesleyanism, whether it's victorious life, etc. Can I ask a clarifying question? Yeah. Um, so what, what Bright teaches is that everyone's indwelt by the Spirit but not walking in the power of the Spirit. That's another that, version of it, yeah. So that's we're talking about that, not just like you can be saved without the Spirit. Are we talking? Well, you're about not fully saved if you haven't gotten dwelled? if you're not if you're not indwelled by the Spirit or right, he, walking he by the Spirit, right? Indwelling and filling. Are we talking about? But, but whoa, 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 whoa! You just made these dichotomies. Where do you where do you get this idea of? In, I'm so trying to like put that together. Having the Spirit, but walking in the power of the Spirit. So how would you have a sovereign Spirit? I know I'm, I'm just I'm trying to play with you. Okay. How would you have a sovereign spirit that isn't sovereign? Say more of what you mean. Well, if you have the spirit, so you say you're indwelled with the spirit. Yeah. What is that spirit doing? Well, in I think you? we can we can either choose to be submitting to the spirit or not. So therefore letting him reign as the sovereign that he is, or being like, oh no, you just don't do that. I'll I'll keep reigning even now, just step back for a minute. That's right. That's how it can be proposed, which means you're having to have another, some other kind of experience, some other kind of an event where the Holy Spirit becomes active in my life. Now, because what's going to stop you, think about this for a minute. If you're sitting here and I'm saying, you know, there's certainly the idea of grieving the Spirit. But if there's this idea that I can have the indwelling of the Spirit and yet have not the power of the Spirit, and that power is now subject to my will and power. Now, does this sound like what kind of stuff we've been talking about in terms of 
the sovereignty of God, etc. So now there's this place in our spirituality where God is held captive by our will. The Spirit's there, but He can't do anything. See, there's, there's, that's where we're going here. This I mean, is where it gets scary. We'll talk about the battle of the flesh and the Spirit. Yeah, like, yeah. There's a, there is a tension there. That's true. But what you're going to find in, when we go in a minute to say Romans 6 is that Paul's going to say it's impossible. He's going to say it's impossible. The same Spirit that saved you is sanctifying you. It's irresistible. Now, it's true. It's a gradual process. It's a now, not yet. In other words, the coming of the kingdom, it gets back to our eschatology. The kingdom of God has come, but it's not yet fully come. It's still, it's still coming. And that tension is in the... Even in the world, we see that there is both good and evil. And that world is internalized. There's both good and evil in us. So it's true that... The, so, if, so I'm going to try to get you to think of it a very differently way, and I think a biblical way. The Bible teaches that the, that the kingdom of God has come, that the Holy Spirit has come. And yet it also teaches that, that God is restraining, if you will, his kingdom in a manner that allows the kingdom to come to its fullness through its historical progression that's it's, it, it's been planned. And that's the book of Revelations, this idea of, of Satan who's on a chain, but he's out there still doing work, but he's, but he's under still the sovereign hand of God. So I don't know if I'm, I hope, hope you're seeing it. So, so look, somebody else talk to me about it. This is good. You're getting to the issue and some of the tensions that I want to get into. Let's get somebody else before you get in there. Let me just make sure everybody else has a chance. You're, you're good at talking. I mean, in a good way. Anybody else back there at that table? Is that helping? Anybody want to? Yeah. I just wanted to add about the cardinal. <clears throat> the definition, it says, or relating to the body, sexual or sensual, relating to given the crude body pleasures and appetites that are marked by sexuality. Um. <clears throat> Were you reading that? Um, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Okay, yeah. And, and, well. But, I mean, I, I do look like sometimes like looking at what the words mean. Um, well, that's not the word. The word is in Greek, and we need to go look at the Greek word. Yeah. Not a translation of it. But that, that being said, so I wouldn't go to Webster. I'd probably go to a Greek lexicon. But, but let's get, what's your point? That's fine. I guess where it is, I think I understand, too, where it was coming from the West, um, Merriam-Webster. But it's just coming... Is more given over to the the sinful nature versus just yeah okay being directly so so here's person. the idea let me try to let, okay what do you want to say um, in my brief Reader's Digest version uh, immediately following Easter Jesus came to the disciples and breathed on them and said receive mm-hmm. the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit mm-hmm. Uh, after the ascension. There was something that happened at Pentecost, and mm-hmm. there was a marked difference in the mm-hmm. disciples from you know when they were yep. when they, and and the Pentecost. they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. but that's a historical event. Keep in mind that's not don't don't equate that as being repeated in every person's life. After that, it never happens again. Right? We don't have Pentecost every day. That was a historical, what we call an eschatological event. That was a moment. I'm just answering your question. Oh, I know, I know. I'm just, I know, I know. I'm not refuting. I'm just saying I want to make sure we understand that that's exactly right. I mean, that's a good point. That that in this movement there was a time when when God had not released the Holy Spirit upon humanity. Therefore, 
you know, in the Gospels you hear these occasions. Well, and it, it even goes back to the spirit that comes, that enables us to believe in the Messiah. And so someone would say, have you been baptized in John? Remember that? Oh, oh yes, I've got John's baptism. Well, you need to be baptized or, by the Holy Spirit. Or Apollos or, you know. And this is an incredibly yeah. good example of, of why it's so dangerous to proof text your Bible. Because if you rip those those statements out of the right. story, right? If you take it out of the story, then you're gonna you're gonna personalize it. You're gonna make that into a, a systematic statement rather than a redemptive historical narrative. Right. And you're gonna establish first class Christians and second class Christians. Well, but, but that's not that's true. But but where I want you to see is a hermeneutic right. issue here. Okay. I want you all to see. Just hold on for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Um, what I want you to see is if you read the Bible as it is written as a redemptive historical narrative, what you're going to find is, of course, the coming of the kingdom of God and how that kingdom is being brought to us in this redemptive historical context. And the kingdom comes, let's start with the New Testament at least, vis-a-vis the, 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 uh, the prophecy of John, and his baptism, which is unto repentance. And he foretells, what? That there will be yet another baptism. A bat- he will baptize you in the Spirit. Isn't that right? And then when Jesus comes, you see this very thing working out in the Gospels. Right. We're often, I've been baptized, but no, you need to be baptized in the Spirit. You, being baptized in John was not sufficient because the Spirit had not been given. But then Jesus tells us in the Gospel that there awaits yet another historical redemptive event. You know, the redemptive events of the gospel, like, they start with what? His birth. Right. His death. His resurrection. Right. His ascension. Is that the only historical events? No. That relate to Jesus? What's the next one? Return. Huh? Return. Well, you skipped over one. His baptism. No, that was true. That You can even almost say, but that was, but no, the great or salutes we call events. The Holy Spirit. Pentecost. Yeah. Okay. When Christ comes, this is what he for. You know, tell, Luke tells us there's. You know, the whole Gospel of Luke is setting you up for the Pentecost, right. actually. Right. Okay. So here's where I want to go. Back to your question back there. It's true if redemptive historically, and this is what Wesleyanism and victorious lifeism and carnal Christians, or what's called the spirit-filled life of of the Crusade model that, that came through. Uh, what's his name, and, and all of this. So, so all of these are Wesleyan. And what they would do is look at the scripture and they would see these, these you know, baptism ones or these, these, these events one, events two, and I think, well, we think, take them out of its redemptive historical context. And what, my question though was, what would tempt you to do that? What would be the circumstance, because I want to give these guys a little bit of a, of a pass here, what would be the circumstance that would look that would go to the Bible and see that? What would they be observing around them, do you think? People not acting like Christians. Good. Carnal Christians. At least from a descriptive point of view, Christians, that is, if you're living in Christendom, like Wesley was, like Whitfield was, Whitfield rejected all this eventually, but this is the whole Methodism and all of this stuff. If you know the Wesleyan tradition, you know they have the camps. That's the purpose of these camps. 
is you would go to these camps and you would you would meet and look and pray for this second baptism. You were already in the church. You were already communing with Christ at the Lord's table. But you were dead. You were not alive. You weren't experiencing the victorious life, if you will. So you would go to camp and you would pray for this, this second baptism. And, that, and revivalism would feed this flame of looking for the second baptism. Victorious life is a different version of the same phenomenon, but it was not so much a... this Victorious life gets into exactly what you were saying back there. This idea of the indwelling, but not the filling. And I, I chopped my teeth on that in college. Okay. You know, I got that stuff big time. Anybody else get that stuff? Now, we've got to be careful. It is true that... We can speak of being spirit-filled. If you mean by filled, uh, that we are obeying Scripture. Remember, Scripture is written by Scripture. That we're obeying Scripture as empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we should pray for that obedience. We should pray for the empowerment of God by the Holy Spirit to obey His Scripture. Okay, that's all good. It's this idea that you're waiting for yet another event or an experience. And that's taken out of these historical sequential sequence of events, this misunderstood as from its historical redemptive context to an individual, what we call an order salutis uh, event. So, so the order of salvation is a different topic than, than the history of salvation. So there's a historio salutis and there's an order salutis. This is the stuff that we talk about in theology. The historical salutus says, here is the manner in which God brings into this world his kingdom vis-a-vis the gospel of Messiah ministry. And they come in his death, birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming again in the Holy Spirit. Right. Okay. Where Jesus says, I will come to you and I will build many houses and he's talking about, and, and then right there, for, for I send you the Holy Spirit, another, another advocate. And then I will dwell in you in the whole John prayer. I am you, you and me. He's come. So you could say, you could even call Pentecost the second advent of Christ. In a mediatorial way, it's the second advent of Christ, waiting for the hour's third, if you will. You could, you could say that. Are y'all following this? Yeah. And Luke says in his gospel and in Acts, wait for the promise of the yep, Father. Exactly. And what you're saying is that promise, uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit, that was the fulfillment of that promise. I think. Is everybody it. understanding what we're saying about the victorious life and this idea of the carnal yeah. Christian? So it, do you believe in the carnal Christian? Is there such a thing? No. Let's, let's, come on, Greg, you're, you're, you're going for it today. Just sit it for a minute. Well, you look me in the <laughs> eye. I have to say Anybody else believe in it? I'm going, no. I'm going for Christ. Anybody? Be honest. No. Are you struggling with this? Yeah. I believe that there's, I mean, if you read the Westminster Confession and you substitute carnal for flesh, then there's carnality in all of us. There is carnality in all of us, and yes. So in some sense, we're, we're all carnal Christians, and but there's no distinction, and it's not. Uh, so what I'm getting at is more of a category of Christian. I'm not talking about the idea that we are all living in the, and we're going to look at that, this, this uh, 
Well, the distinction is kind of subtle. I mean, it's not. Well, of course. Uh, it is if you haven't done theology for very long. <laughs> but it gets pretty clear if you study it pretty hard. That's why the churches never believe this, or at least the majority. I mean, so yes and no, I'm going to say. But let's, let's, that's why you're here. Um, is to try to go deeper in the scripture and see it. But yeah, it's, it's, if you go to, I'm going to show you some scriptures today and it's going to be pretty clear, I think. And, and let's see if I can satisfy you. But we've good. We've opened up some Pandora boxes here. But anybody have a question before we move on to the study? I think I'm confused about why spiritually impotent and fruitless are lumped together. Because I think there can be a Christian who's fruitless because he's trying to do it all on his own, not realizing... That, like, his holiness and good works come only by the Spirit? Yeah. Again, we could say that all three of these, um, well, the natural man, I mean, we could say at least the bottom two, there are aspects of what's going on in our own life. You see the difference? See, we're, we all acknowledge that there is a natural man and there's a spiritual person and that we are living in this now and not yet world where the two are in tension. Remember we talked about it last week. That's not debatable. What's debatable is are we awaiting yet another historical event? I I don't know how to get that, you know, make that clearer. Think of it differently from, (sighs) let me try to think of an analogy. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like having two different, it's like having, if, if I think of it in a, in a, a, I'm trying to, what's the word when you categorize, uh, in science, you categorize animals and things, what do you call that? Taxonomy. Taxonomy or something, yeah. There's another word. But, but, but it's as if you have two different beings, two different entities is, is what's going on here. You're, you're a carnal Christian, which means that you're awaiting yet another event in your life, somehow, somewhere, however you describe it, that will make you a, a full Christian, if you will. We're going to say, what? When you're saved, let's just go to the passage. There's just Christians and there's not. Romans, there's just or Christians or there's that's not. The that's exactly what we're saying. Thank yeah, you. Right. Go to chapter 6 of, a, of, of Romans. We've got a new one here. <laughs> Go to chapter 6. Isn't there a clue in C, though, and it says because he trusts in his own efforts to live... Well, that's you're describing the struggle. You're describing the struggle. You see the difference? But we're not saying that you are therefore not a full Christian yet. Do you see? But your your verbal description of awaiting another experience is clearer than, like, looking at what's up there. That's not me. That is uh, Bill Bright's language. Those three things are Bill Bright. I didn't write that. Yeah, but that's how you were telling us to think of a carnal man. Well, I'm telling you what. I just gave you that so you'd see how he describes it. That's okay. all. Let's look at chapter 6 of, of uh, Romans. Anybody can do that? And I want you to look at what's going to happen here. I'm looking it up myself here. So... Remember, this is after he just kept saying, uh, where grace abounds, sin abounds, uh, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's how chapter 5 ends, okay? And then what is he going to say? Let me read it for us. Well, somebody else read it. Read, read, read all the way down through Romans six twelve or so. What hmm? shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Okay, what do you hear there? What, what's he saying? So the, 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 the question that started this is, well, if, if it's true that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, why would we continue to sin? You've heard that, right? Answer? What does he say? Somebody see if you can summarize it. Josh, you did such a good job of putting it into a sentence. Do it again. <laughs> what does this tip basically tell you? That, uh, well, that you're either, you've either been baptized with the Holy Spirit or you're not. Your heart's either changing towards that direction or you're not. And it only happens through faith alone in Christ Jesus. Okay, good. You're, you're there? Well, how do you see that? Somebody else help him out. That's good. But what does he say here that, that says, hold it. It, it, it? Basically, he says, that's impossible. That, that, that can't happen. He didn't say, please don't let that happen. He didn't say, oh, you, you, yeah, but you need to have, yeah, but, but you need to go have this other experience. Now that you've been justified, see, that was the first part, right? You've been justified by grace through faith. Now you need to have some other event in your life. He could have said that right there. He had the greatest opportunity in the world to say it. You're right, man. We will continue to sin if we don't go forward, if we don't do, be, something else happens. In other words, is there any evidence whatsoever in this passage that there is yet something else that must happen in, with, or through us? Is there any evidence of that? No. In fact, just the contrary, what does he do? He goes overboard. And what does he say? This is impossible, he says. The same spirit that enabled you to embrace Christ by faith and therefore die with him, which means be, be justified by his grace, is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead who lives in you. How can the same spirit that gave you faith not then resurrect in you the new life? In other words, he is making a brilliant course, it's the word of God, a brilliant argument here. You can't participate in the death of Christ if you're not participating in the resurrection of Christ. That's all he's saying. You can't do it. Because it's the same one and the same spirit. And this order, historical order of salvation is the same historical order that is happening in us. Wherein, if you have been justified by grace through faith, we all know, Christians, you've been doing this theology now for almost a year, right? We all know you couldn't have been justified by grace through faith except that you were born again by the Holy Spirit. And now he's saying the same spirit that born you again is resurrecting you into a new life. 
It's going to happen. So, so that he renders the question, well, if, if we are saved by grace through faith and where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, why would we continue to sin? He says simply impossible. Just not going to happen. And it's not because of us. He didn't point us to us and how we're so strong and how we're so something's going to happen to us. He points to the Holy Spirit that lives in us. There is no such thing as a carnal Christian. So if you are acting carnally in an unrepentant manner, what does it beg? Whether you're a Christian or not. That's what we say. You have to have a what? A credible profession of faith. A faith that shows evidence of, sure, you're still, the kingdom is coming, which means we are being sanctified more and more. It's a process. But to live in unrepentant sin, to take on the attitude of this carnal that says, I don't care how I live, is to beg the question that we're Christians at all. So I could go talk to every one of you in this room, I suspect. And I would say, do you care? Are you struggling with failures and successes, but are you struggling more and more to follow after Christ? I think, well, I believe very deeply, since you were admitted to this church and that was one of your questions, that you would, have to, you would say, I'm a Christian, of course I am. And I'm going to say, well, where did that come from? And I hope you're going to say, orthodox answer, the Holy Spirit. The very will to fight against sin is the power of the Holy Spirit that works in you. The same power that gave you faith. So this is really important. On the one hand, and this is where you have all kinds of church history just piling into this conversation. On the one hand, it's very important to distinguish justification from sanctification. Do you know why? Because your assurance is, is based on, it would, would get screwed up. So we all know that the basis of my assurance is not my works, but the works of Christ that is imputed to me, right? Now we know the language, wherein I share in the death of Christ. That is, the wrath of God has been exhausted upon Christ, and I have been raised up with Christ into a new life, and now that enables me to walk more and more in faithfulness. So that's important to distinguish justification from sanctification. But on the other hand, the other pitfall is, but that justification sanctification is not two different historical acts of, of, or events in my life. It is two rational categories, if you will, that explain different aspects of the one and same salvific act of God. And that's, that's very important. Or you get into this other side of the mess. All right? Mm-hmm. Dang, I forgot to pray again. <laughs> We're supposed to do this little thing for about 10 minutes and then go on and pray, but we, I end up teaching half of it with this thing. I shouldn't do that. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, thank you for, for a robust opportunity to, to really think about this stuff. And I pray you'll take the rest of our time and you'll bring increased clarity to see just how dependent and how utter thankful we are because we see already, Lord, how it is that you and, and that our full salvation is a gift. It's by grace. Salvation is as much an act of your free grace as our justification is by the same one Spirit who directs us to the same one Christ. We thank you, Lord, and give you praise and help us to continue to understand that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's turn to your... Uh, um,
handout. And we're going to zip through a few things here. Some I'll cover more closely than others. But let's go ahead and get this idea of one Christian, right? We got so so back to the thing. A Christian is a Christian is a Christian. There is no such thing as a quote carnal Christian. There is certainly a Christian who struggles with carnality. But there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. And here's another example of it in Ephesians chapter 2. Somebody read that. It's right there at the beginning of your thing. This is a great passage, again, that would call to question any notion otherwise. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be in our way in life. So, where does our good works come from? Spirit. Well, what does it say there? See that? Prepared for good works? Created where? In Christ Jesus. So, who created it? We created it? No. So, God, the same God who gave us faith, that we're told is not of our own doing, is a gift. Not the result of works, so that anyone could boast. And then he goes right on and says, For, which in continuation to this salvation that I'm talking about, the same salvation, for we are now, and look at the past tense. Past tense. Not, we are now waiting for something to happen. We are now, what he has made us now, now created in Christ Jesus for good works. Because the faith is the very product of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who is enabling us not only to believe in Christ, but now to do good works. And so there you have it. Now, let's read Titus 2. Um, Someone, if you would, turn to that in your Bible. This is an interesting phrase, because often when you and I think of the word grace, again, I'm going back to what I said at the beginning of the study tonight, Oftentimes we think of sanctification, this, this process of our becoming holy, as the fine print. Oh yeah, that's, that's all the duty stuff. That's all the law stuff. That's all the holiness stuff that takes the fun out of life, right? The fine print. If I'm a Christian, i got to be holy. Yuck. All right? I can't tell you how many people I talked to, but that's, and that was a problem for me too. Now listen to this passage in Titus, beginning in verse 11. I'll tell you when to stop. Because I don't have it with me. Did someone read that? For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own <coughs> to, do that, to do what is good. Okay, that's good enough. Forget about the, very, the way it started. For the grace of God has appeared. <coughs> and then everything that follows, what is that describing? What did y'all hear? That the Christian walk might look like or should look like. It's talking about holiness. That we would deny ungodliness and worldly desires, that we would you know, went through this whole thing, that we would do good works. 
And all, that's, that's the small print stuff, right? <laughs> but it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, and all of a sudden it defines holiness as salvation. Have you stopped and think about that for a minute? Holiness is not the results of salvation. It is salvation. And there is a fine distinction there. It's not the result of, okay, so I'm going to save you so that you can now be holy. He is saving me by making me holy. And what does that then begin to, to suggest about sin? That we were not only, our problem was not only that we weren't justified and therefore we suffered under God's wrath and, and, and without hope of eternal life, we were being tyrannized by our sins. Sin is a tyranny. Sin is an oppressive force that destroys humanity and destroys our world. So to save us, so here is a great example again of where, where Paul thinks of our salvation holistically, not in parts, but holistically. Certainly he's already described in this, in this book the idea that we were justified by grace through faith alone. But now he says, and the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to die in godliness and worldly desires, etc., etc., etc. And now I'm going to see that holiness is a grace. Now our confession, if you go through the shorter catechism that we teach our children, and hopefully you've, you've, you've hopefully, I'd encourage you to try to memorize this if you haven't before. But it starts off, everyone, the free grace of God, but the free grace of God, and it goes through justification and effectual calling and all this, and then you get the sanctification that says the free grace of God. By God's free grace, we are enabled, and there it is. It's all the grace of God. So the first thing I wanted to say is, I'm trying to turn a little bit of, of some of, I think, our perception, and maybe you hear this in the world. You're talking to someone who maybe is not a believer, and their hang-up is, you know... What you're saying about the you know the gospel is great, but I don't know if I'm ready for all those laws and all those rules and all that holiness stuff. Can I wait till I'm about to die and do all this? Is my ticket to heaven? Well, if I knew when I was going to die, maybe. But but let's just pretend for a minute. So I'm going to let you help me here. I'm struggling, all right? And you're talking to me, and I say, look, everything you're saying is really important. I do believe in God. I, yeah, you're right. There's no way. I'm serving God in my life, but you know, but you know, I had this magic voice from heaven saying that I was going to die at the age of 97. So how about we just wait till 96? Now, how would you respond to me? I'll go to heaven now, supposedly. Well, there's two things you should say now, but, but at least how would you respond to me based on this passage? You know, so you were really missing God's blessing by waiting exactly. so long. Yeah, yeah. And how are you doing right now? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing pretty good, actually. It's, it's, you know, I think so. That's the problem. Yeah. You talk to a lot of folks and they feel pretty good about their life. And I'm going to have to help them see some things there, right? Right? I'm going to have to ask the question. Well, and it might be a deeper level. Right. Maybe you don't even know what you're missing. And maybe even the struggle that we would enter into, because it is a struggle. Maybe you're going to suffer for being a Christian. But we're going to have to define that as something that is, is freedom. See, I'm going to start talking about freedom, real freedom. 
you know, purposeful freedom, etc. But it's not an easy argument, it's my point. But, but fundamentally what we're going to say is exactly what you said. That you're missing out. Because honestly, you, 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 uh, there is a bondage that, you're, that you would discover you are in now that you'd be set free from. And there's going to be a deeper joy of everything in life when that happens. And I can say that. I think you should be able to say that. I mean, how can you... How could you possibly appreciate nature as a non-Christian the way you would as a Christian? When in nature you see the very beauty in the mind of God. It's hard work being a hypocrite. <laughs> it is. I was a good one. For yeah, yeah. A long I still am. Me. Yeah. Struggles. But, but thank God he saves hypocrites too, right? Oh, absolutely. That's right. All right. So anybody else on that question? Any questions or thoughts about that? You think this is important to kind of reestablish that holiness and sanctification is a grace? So, you know, there's a nice little quote here by Francis Schaeffer. Um, and he's just talking about this same thing, about how it's one and the same event. I became a Christian once for all upon the basis of the finished work of Christ through faith. That is justification. The Christian life, sanctification, operates on the same basis. But moment by moment. It's the same thing. Not a new new order event, not a new historical event in my life. It's the same thing. I'm just it's being saved every day. Through repentance and faith. And that's his point. I won't read the rest of it. Um, we've talked about uh, the difference between justification and sanctification and how they're different. Um, I do want to read uh, a passage that uh, let, let's read I'm not going to go through this whole thing. I get into the Roman Catholic debate. Right there. And we're just going to skip over it. You can read it for yourself. And it just helps you to think through this, this sort of idea. Justification by grace alone through a faith that is never alone. We can agree with that. But if you look at it a little closer, you'd probably just say it a little different. Y'all read through that. And, and I think hopefully it'll be uh, interesting for you. But look at the way that A.A. That a. Hodge says it. Regeneration is the commencement of sanctification. And sanctification is the completion of the work commenced in regeneration. As regeneration is an act of God's free grace, so sanctification is gracious work of God and eminently of the Holy Spirit. Are you beginning to get a message here? Every one of these statements that you're reading are meant to debunk Wesleyanism. They're trying to make the case. No, the whole, the regenerate. There is no other regeneration other than the regeneration that made us a Christian, and therefore sanctification is the same act of God's free grace that you should expect and, and live, even if in a historical now not yet way uh, related to the kingdom of God. Confessional language pertaining to sanctification makes use of the phrase "more and more." What do you think is the purpose of such language? What do you think? Why does the confession say that? Yeah, we should read it, shouldn't we? Let me just read. I don't know. If, does anybody have the Confession of Faith in front of them? Because somehow it's not. It's going to come up later, but I'll just go ahead and read it. They who are once effectually called. Now, what happens when you're effectually called? Born again. You're given faith, and you're justified. So notice again the continuity here. They who are once effectually called and regenerated, having a new heart, and a new spirit created in them are further sanctified. 
really and personally through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection by his word and spirit dwelling in them. Did you see that, by the way, back there? By his word and spirit that's already now dwelling in us. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof are more and more weakened and mortified. So it's as if we are more and more sharing in the death of Christ both for our justification's sake but also in the killing off of our sin by the Holy Spirit. And they more and more quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to the practice of true holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. We'll talk about that in a minute. Notice again, number two. This sanctification is throughout. In other words, it's holistic. In the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome, and so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's your definition of of sanctification right there. And so what do you think that more and more is meant to uh, caution against? I feel like I'm losing y'all somehow today. I don't know why. <laughs> what did you say, Fred? Saying you're without sin. Okay, on the one hand, we're in this life never ever perfected. That's one. It's a growing process. It's a growing process. And what's the other thing? What did you say, Gary? I was going to say essentially the same thing. And the more and more, based on what has been said, is saying, we're again, this is not a two-part salvation. It's not a another start. It's a part one. Yeah. And one is A to Z. Yeah. You're saved or you're not saved. And this is what saving people look like. And there's been so many, I'm telling you, that, why do you think I'm going crazy like this? You know, I know y'all think, why does he make this? Because I can't tell you how it's going to send you on a rabbit trail in your life if you keep waiting for this next event. And how many times are you going to live and struggle waiting for this event? You have got the power in you now if you're a Christian. So believe it and step out in faith, trusting it. Obey Scripture. And yes, when you struggle, you're going to say, wow, even the Puritans believe this. (laughs) You know, then we're struggling. And that fits in eschatology. Eschatology is huge. We're going to talk about it later, but eschatology is huge. Eschatology is it's going to inform our expectations about the historical uh, process of God's redemption in the world. And we are in that process of a now, not yet, kingdom of God. And that's working inside of us, as much as it's working outside of us in the world. So there's a now, not yet. Yeah. You said something interesting, or used a word that was interesting, trust. Yeah. And we've been talking a lot about this because... That's something we have learned in the last six months is, mm. and thought about a lot is the trusting. And, and we gain our trust by what, by what our human understanding is and how we relate with other people. And learning to switch that over that we truly can trust God really 
has been momentous to Yeah, to, yeah. It's, it's a process that will happen after. It's going to always happen. It's going to continue. And God's providence will do exactly what it's done in your life and enable us more and more. But it's a more and more. But it's understanding the word mm-hmm. trust. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's part of sanctifying. Isn't that right? I mean, to understand trust is a sanctifying experience. It is. Yeah. Okay, good. So let's go on. Um, so sanctification, notice, has both a negative and positive dimension. Did you catch that in what we just read? What's the negative? How is it stated? How, how can we describe sanctification in a negative sense? What's happening to us? The body of sin is destroyed and the lusts are more weakened and mortified. Right. Good. The word mortification of sin. The putting to death. It means dying. Guys, stop and take a breath on that for a minute, right? Because <laughs> being sanctified means to die. <laughs> Things are dying. Things are being put to death. There's going to be grief in that death. There's going to be struggle in that death. It's not easy being put to death. Dreams, ambitions, idols that you love are going to be put to death. And when they are put to death, they hurt. There is a sorrow in sanctification as things that we falsely depended upon are exposed as weak. And, and fruitless. And many times it'll take things away from us that we love and we and we looked to to be satisfied and could not have been set free from their idolatry until God took it away. And I would say that's going to happen to every I mean there is no sanctification apart from death. And why is that? Remember our life is living the the life of Christ. There is no salvation apart from the cross. Everyone must take up their cross and follow after me, Jesus said. And that means a lot more than just some kind of an ethical, or I think a lot of people read that and they think immediately, oh, yeah, we're going to have to, it's almost like it's describing a crusade. And I'm going to enter the crusade of Christ and go out there and be a champion for the, for the kingdom of God. But no, it's much deeper than that. It's, it's, and I say that because look at how Paul used it in Romans 6, the way we just read it. He says, you are being put to death in the death of Christ. There is is a phenomenal introduction to a phenomenal book by J.I. Packer, if you want to get on this stuff of mortification. And it's called The Death of Death. And the introduction is amazing on the mortification of sin that the Puritans believed. If you want to get into that. Well, the positive dimension is what? Go ahead, someone pick up with where you left off. What's the positive dimension? Quickened and strengthened in all the There you go. Quickened and strengthened in all the graces. A new life, a resurrection. So sanctification always involves bearing or sharing in the cross of Christ, being put to death, and, thank God, sharing in the resurrection of Christ, being given a new life. And it's an ongoing, more and more kind of a thing. That's pretty amazing. Um, So here we have this, I I give a quote by R.C. Ryle. Um, uh, uh, You can read it there, I'm going to skip over that. Is sanctification imperfected in this life? You know, of course, 1 John, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us, speaking to the church there. 
someone read that larger catechism question. I think it states it pretty well. Hence ariseth. You see that? Whence ariseth the imperfection of sanctification in believers? The imperfection of sanctification in believers ariseth from the remnants of sin abiding in every part of them, and the perpetual lustings of the flesh against the spirit, whereby they are often foiled with temptations and fall into many sins, are hindered in all their spiritual services, and their best works are imperfect and defiled in the sight of God. Now, again, that's so gracious. Because it explains my life and yours. And yet, we grieve it. We, we, we fight it. We persevere through it. And that's the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it is important. I mean, these, this is 350 years ago, Puritans writing what Christians had believed for 2,000 years. You can get the same stuff in the Calvin, the Luthers, the Augustines, all the way back. In this Orthodox string. And, um, and so, it, obviously, we don't believe in perfectionism in this life. And if you did, we saw that later. I, pl- I worked on the issue with you a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, was it? Or was it that, but the danger of perfectionism is if, if we do believe in it, then we will never have assurance until we're perfect. And the only way we're going to make, make ourselves convinced that we're perfect is to become a Pharisee and reduce the law to something that's very outward and, and, and superficial. And that's called... I don't know. Phariseeism, legalism, a lot of Christianity that likes to point out, you know, cigarette smoking as if it's the, the, the you know, deadly sin, and uh, it doesn't think about the evil that's in our hearts. So the good news of the gospel is we can face sin now and really be honest with it because we're not afraid of condemnation, and that's really important. So this, I get into this whole issue of the historical views of perfectionism. We've, again, already talked about that. Uh, this applies it to this topic. Um, again, I'm going to encourage you to go back and read it. Um, I'm trying to see if there's anything in here I want to point out a little bit. Uh, well, well, here's this little point here. and Let me read it because we, we talked about it. Do you see right there on page uh, 3? And as the Gospels applied to right living, you see that little state, that little quote there from Keller? As the Gospels applied to right living, Jonathan Edwards, and this is where I got my quote, points out that the true virtue is only possible for those who experience the grace of the Gospel. Any person who is trying to earn their salvation does, not, does the right thing in order to get into heaven or in order to better their self-esteem. In other words, the ultimate motive is self-interest. But persons who know they are totally accepted already do the right thing out of sheer delight in righteousness for its own sake. Only in the gospel do you obey God for God's sake, and not for what God will give you. Only in the gospel do you love people for their sake, do good for its own sake, and obey God for his sake. Only the gospel makes doing the right thing a joy and a delight, not a burden or a means to an end. You know, my uh, middle son, you know, is one of these people who... Really, he's like that guy that 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 the Olympic guy that ran and he, the, he said, you know, that, chariots, you know, chariots, fire, chariots, and, 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 and music comes on. You're crying about now, and he's just feeling God, right? You know, 
you know, I would love to get to that place in my workout schedule. I've never in my life gotten there. Never, never have I gotten there. I mean, I was an athlete, a pretty achieved athlete. Never. It was always with the goal of winning, and that was the only reason I did it. The second I quit playing football and got, I stopped working out. It was done. I said I'd never touch a, a weight of, as long as I lived, and I, and I didn't for about 30 years. Still don't. So I guess I never have. I kind of went back a little bit, but that's about it. No, I mean, really, because it was a total different motivation for glory to win or esteem or some other thing. But there are things maybe you do like my middle son does. My older son doesn't do it this reason. My, daughter, my younger daughter doesn't do it. But Nathan runs for the, the sheer joy of running. There's just no doubt about it. 10.30 in the night, this kid says, I'm just going to go run seven miles. And he gets up and he runs and he comes back and he's the happiest human being in the world. I mean, I can't exaggerate this guy. I mean, even, well, don't, I don't want to put it on tape, but y'all know what he's just done. But even his instructor says, man, you're crazy during hell. For he actually kind of loved it. You, you, you know, and maybe, I don't know. But, but, but all of us have something like that, I bet. Can you think of something like that where, where you just do it and you just, God, I just, I just love doing it. It's just the joy of doing it. You're doing it, and it's the pure joy of doing it. That's what holiness should be and can be. It's, it's the joy of doing it that, that only the Spirit can put in us. And when we are doing it for that, for the joy of the Lord, for the joy of life, then we're sanctified. And I confess, I have a lot of sanctification waiting for me. And it'll be perfected in heaven. And holiness will be joyful. Now, it's a struggle, but there are moments. And so that's, I hope you understand how important the gospel is. You can't, and I say this to you, there's a real important strategic implication of this. I can't tell you the pressure that we have in ministry, or I have as a preacher, or our church has, to start with the sins in our, in our relation to the world. To go up and stand in the pulpit and decry whatever the popular, politically correct sins are of the world. But that's not going to solve the problem, is it? No. You can't be sanctified until you're justified. You can't. I could talk against X sin, Y sin all day long. You can't be sanctified. You can't experience the victorious life, if I may use that phrase, until you're justified. So we talk about sin, capital S, we call that original sin, the sin of rejecting God. And when that sin has been dealt with by the grace of the gospel through justification by grace through faith alone, I now have a new creature here that I can work with. And we can talk about some of these Really big issues, and so it's it's not this this idea of the relationship between justification and sanctification is not only important for you personally; it's important for your your whole strategy and ministry and how you relate to your friends. So, what are you going to do? I, I used to have this struggle. I was in a fraternity when I first became a Christian, and it was out there to save the world. And how do I relate to all these guys that are? I just saw something the other day. I'm on one of these you know listservs and. And they were remembering a party, and I was in the picture of that party, and I remembered that party. 
And I know what was happening at 11 o'clock at night, like happened at so many fraternity parties when all the guys and the girls are going upstairs. And I was struggling. I didn't understand my theology yet. I didn't know how to relate to this. Am I supposed to, how, what does it look like to be a faithful Christian? Should I be targeting what's happening up, upstairs? Should that be my target to stop them from doing that? Well, yeah, but... But how? How, exactly. I need to talk... We need to, we need to get to the bigger issue. And we can make a lot of mistakes because it becomes... It's impossible for these people to... I mean, it just it's, it's nonsensical to them for two consensual people to do what they were doing. And it's not... I mean, how can you tell me it's not fun to them, they would say. And so, and you see that right now. It's like it doesn't make sense until you have the gospel. So, I don't want to burn the, the bridge. I don't want to burn an opportunity. Yeah, they know my position. It wasn't as if they didn't know my position, both by example and I would say it. But that's not the focus of my relationship with this person. Every time I get with them, say, let's go talk about that. <laughs> my relationship with that person is trying to do anything and everything I can do to enable them to see the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think that's really important. I, you, know, you think this theology is not practical. What we just talked about is huge and how you're going to approach your friends out there and what's going to happen with that. Anybody want to talk about that? Y'all, y'all understand what we're talking about here? Yeah. What do y'all think about that? Well, I was thinking, you're not, until you uh, realize the justification, you're really not equipped to go forward. Yeah, that's right. You don't have those there. Right. I mean, that's back to that first point. You're not, you're not indwelled with the Spirit, if you will. But you are if you're a Christian. Right. But you can't see. You mm-hmm. can't even see the kingdom. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to talk about? About that? Well, this next section just wants to get into the whole issue of liberty. We have already talked about it a little bit. The idea of, of sanctification is setting us free. Um, you know, I talk about here on page four the, the sanctification, the small print of our salvation contract with Christ, and we don't think of it that way, do we? But look at, again, Titus, because um, it goes on and says, For we were fool- ourselves were at once foolish, disobedience, led astray, slaves, slow down, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Passing our days, that is wasting our days, and malice and envy. Hated by others, hated one another, but when the goodness... You know, that's another thing. If you are talking to that friend, it's amazing how we... Everything's great until you start talking about other sins that they don't think about. I mean, do you envy your neighbor? Do you covet things you don't have? Are you frustrated? Are you satisfied? You know, do you have enough in your life? What is it like to live life where you're not content? You know, if you're a highly motivated person, let's say. I mean, it's one thing to be ambitious. It's another thing not to be content. You know, ambitious for for glorious purposes versus, but I I don't need this. I think I've made that distinction even in ministry. You know, someone comes and says, why do you want to plant a church? And, and man, it's the most important thing in my life. And I'm I'm kind of going, okay, my ears are perking. What do you mean by that? (laughs) And if I hear the my whole identity, my whole life, it, it is it is who I am, man. I'm gonna go. Oh man, you got you got to go back to the drawing board in the Christianity here. You're gonna you're gonna kill some people. 
I mean, literally, you're going to kill some people spiritually. Because think about what happens when you get in my way of being a successful pastor. Man, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> because my whole life depends on this. And I'm telling you, it's so important. What, what would we want to say to that guy? So I, I chose that one because I figured that would be one that you wouldn't have thought of at first. I mean, I'd say the same thing about your job as a chemist or as a you know, lawyer, whatever you're doing. Um, it's the same thing. If, if your life depends on it, it's your whole identity. You're enslaved to your passions. You are really in a bad place. You're, you're the kind of guy that Brookstone's owner, founder and owner is that, that achieved this amazing thing and he was so unsatisfied he shot himself in the head. And he wrote a letter saying the only thing worse than not achieving everything you went out to achieve is to achieve it all and discover that, that you're still not satisfied. Bang. That's dangerous stuff. That's enslavement. And so here we go. And it pushes us and pushes us to, to crazy extremes, right? So that's a really important thing. And so this idea of oppression. And what I try to do is just explore. You know, the, notice some of the language there. Um, the oppression of various passions and, and pleasures. I'm thinking of this, uh, you know, seven deadly sins here. You know, gluttony. Isn't that what he's talking about? Various passions and pleasures. I'm enslaved to it. That's gluttony. Don't think of gluttony as I eat too much food, by the way. <laughs> and that's just that's one we use. But gluttony is any insatiable hunger that can't be satisfied. And so you try to feed it and feed it and feed it and feed it. Alcoholism's gluttony. Materialism's gluttony. You know, prestigeism's gluttony. It just goes on and on. Or the oppression of disobedience, I mean, of malice and envy. Think about that, how that affects our relation. Malice and envy. What, what do you think that's describing there? See, these are sins that we often, if I'm talking to my friend who's got it all together, you would say, let's talk about malice and envy. You know, how, how, how do you relate to a guy that's got your job that you want? Or on and on it goes. Uh, covetousness or the oppression of disobedience uh, that is pride and the weight of pride and hub- we're going to talk about hubris in our sermon that I preached two weeks ago in my head so you're going to get it this week since we had a, a snow but it's, 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 the, it's the folly of hubris is what you're enslaved to your hubris or the oppression of Endless uh, talk devoid of walk, hypocrisy. I said it somehow in there. I'm going through this. Uh, or the, this, the, uh, oh, my, here it is. The oppression of inactivity, a chip on the shoulder, contentiousness. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Um, that's our world. Whether it's racism, whether it's majoritarianism, whether it's minoritarianism, whether it's uh, white privilege, black uh, victim, I mean, you know, it goes on, and a white victim and white pri- black privilege, because I hear both, I mean, it, I'm not trying to make any statement here about all that, I'm saying it, it just, it's never ending that there's malice, we're enslaved to it, so, yeah, what I want you to hear is that sanctification is the good news of the gospel, it's good news, that he doesn't leave us with being right with God, for eternal life, but doesn't save us from our sins, small s. 
Any conversation? We've got a couple minutes. Anything you want to talk about? Nothing? You sure? I feel like you're not quite sure you want to say it or something, but I want to make sure. I feel like I've rushed through a lot of stuff, and I apologize. I just didn't quite feel as fluid today, but I'm hoping you'll ask a question if you have one. I know a few Christians that are, uh, I believe that they are justified, and they're very comfortable staying right there. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah, and and I, mean, I don't mean this to cause them... I don't know these people, and I'm not speaking yeah. to this, but I think Paul in chapter 6 would beg, that would beg the question. If they're justified. Is that, well, I mean, I don't want to go too far here, because you, I mean, I don't know their heart, well, and you I don't said, know their heart. No, I, I, and that's why I said they have yeah. the appearance. They may, yeah, the appearance is huge, because justified. different people express, they could look very calm and casual, but be, you know, but right. be praying for God to help them through right. their struggles. But, right. but yeah, and, and, and remember, don't, don't forget, we have, there are seasons... Right. We're told, remember, where Christians will. I mean, th- there's an interesting, um, you know, I didn't have time, and I would, you ought to go back and read the chapter, I think 16, on good works. I really wish we, we'd had more time to do that, because uh, we're not going to be able to cover it. So you might want to go look at that. But there is, I have it here. Um, l- listen to this. It says, we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. This is under the good works section by reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come, and the infinite distance that is between us and God, whom by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable service, and because as they, oh, where's my rest of it here, are good, they proceed from the Spirit, Whatever's good proceeds from the Spirit. As they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with such weakness and perfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. In other words, he's talking about the fact that there are there's aspects of our lives that won't pass through judgment. Right? And he's going to talk also about the next passage is how God will give us the grace of sanctification, which he says is ple- which he is going to be pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere. Although with many weaknesses and imperfections. So what I'm trying to remind you of here is, on the one hand, be careful, because it's true that you know, and I know you know this, and all of us know it, that, that we are going to be enabled to do good works in our sanctification. Mm-hmm. And yet our works are going to be constantly um, imperfect. Tainted. And so the good news that I just read to you is, on the one hand, those things that are not good works will not get to heaven with you. They will get, they will be put to death through the, through the judgment. But I, he says right here that there will be God things that we do. God will accept. He will accept and say, "Well done, good and faithful servant." I can't believe that. That's a pretty amazing thought. That there's going to be things about our lives that He's going to accept, and we will be rewarded for that, whatever that reward is, and not out of. That's a mystery to me still, but it's there. And so I think back to this issue, we, you know, we just, we have to be very careful. Not, it's just not given to us to judge a man or woman's, you know, right, soul, right? Right, right? To your point. Yeah. So we don't know, but, but we certainly, you know. Yeah. The, the, the person would say, has said, uh, my sins are forgiven and forgotten. Mm-hmm. That this individual who's an ordained uh, cleric 
believes he's going to heaven with the, whatever sin is in him, he's going to take it to heaven. Well, he, he I don't yeah. look, I'd have to listen to him personally to see yeah. you could yeah. come into a filter, which is you. But if he's saying, I can hear him say that and say, and mean by that, I'm going to go to heaven in, despite, in spite of my sins. Yeah. You know, or however. And yeah. so I don't, we don't need to deal with The point is, no. is the scripture, I mean, the scripture as well, I mean, the point that we're making out of Romans 6 is, Paul's point is, if you come to a place where a person says, well, I'm saved by grace through faith alone, therefore, why bother? I'm saved. I believe in Jesus Christ, so therefore, why bother being good? Paul says in Romans 6, that begs the question. Right. Because in his argument, remember, was the same spirit, mm-hmm. the sovereign spirit that enabled you to believe, it's the same spirit mm-hmm. that enables you to be resurrected in the newness of life. And if the Spirit is not renewing you into everlasting life, it begs the question as to whether or not. So there's a danger here. You, oh, yeah. This, this are when you read the passage of good works, it'll explain how these good works are as evidences. Mm-hmm. Let me find it for you. Now I'll end with this because I think we're running, we ran out of time. Uh, where's the evidence here? I read it earlier. No, I'm sorry, I can't find it real quick. I, I can do a little worse thing here. The book of James. Well, I'm looking at the Westminster Confession right now. Right. Okay. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. Mm-hmm. And by them, believers manifest their thankfulness, strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, blah, 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 blah. It's interesting what he's saying there, because the same place, the same thing earlier said, we're not saved by grace or faith, and it's told us that if we want to d- d- discern assurance, what do we look at? We, we study the bridge. Mm-hmm. And yet, like our creed will say, or not creed, our tradition will say, you're saved by grace or faith, but faith is never alone. Right. You see? Mm-hmm. And so it's not that we look to our works to discern assurance. But we, we, but we acknowledge that our works will give us a greater assurance. Because we see the evidence of God. And it's an evidence, an outward evidence, if you will. They're so interconnected. I mean, you can understand why the church had a little bit of a, you know, a truffle about this stuff through history. Are you <laughs> saying to that. that our good works are ordained by God? Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. It isn't something we've decided to do. It's what he's ordained Ultimately, for yeah. us to do. And then, remember, a secondary uh, cause is our free will to decide to do it. And that's a mystery, how the sovereignty of God and our free will come together in that way. All right, let's, let's call tonight. Thank you for your patience tonight. Lord, we do thank you for uh, your goodness and grace. If nothing else, help us to see how big and how holistic is your, your holiness and your grace to enable us to be holy, that we might be set free from the very things that destroy our lives and our world. We pray for that sanctification, Lord. Help us to be holy. And in our holiness, we see you and discern you and experience you more clearly and fully as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, I didn't get to that Hebrews path. Apart from which, no one can see God. Think about it. 
You, how, how do we see God through the lens of unholiness? We can't. It's, it's seeing Him through dark. So only holiness enables us to see God. And that there's a glimmer of holiness when we're initially given the Holy Spirit to see Him, to hear Him. Right. And it continues. All right. Give Him that.